Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. We're going to talk about a number of things today. Of course, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God because that's the main topic of Keys of the Kingdom. And one of the keys to the kingdom is knowledge, uh, right knowledge. Yea, but for the lack of knowledge, uh, that's what it, it warns us, that we will lack knowledge. Well, there's one thing worse than lacking knowledge, and that's having misinformation. And that seems to be a commodity that everybody uh, is uh, uh, suffering from. Uh, right now, there was a project that came out in the New York Times, and it'll probably be spread in a lot of other papers that reprint these kinds of uh, articles. And it was has to do with what they call the 1619 Project. And uh, it's, it's reframing the Americans' view of history. And the problem is, is that has already been done uh, in the last century. From about 1908 until uh, the end of the century, they, there has been a concerted effort to change the way in which Americans view history. And, of course, I'm quoting from actual studies where philanthropic organizations got together and decided they need to change the way in which Americans viewed history Way back in 1908, now the idea was around even before then, but in 1908, they actually got together with a number of multi-million dollar uh, organizations, uh, supposedly philanthropic organizations, the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the Guggenheim Foundation, uh, and uh, a number of these different uh, uh, large philanthropic organizations got together to change the way in which Americans viewed history. That wasn't the only reason they got together. They had a lot of other ideas uh, that they came up with in their annual meetings. And they kept minutes of their meetings, handwritten minutes of their meetings. And uh, they eventually, uh, about mid-century, there was an investigation called the Reese Commission, and that Reese Commission actually got permission from one of the foundation heads, uh, which they formed their own little group, and and uh, they they sent in a lawyer to examine the handwritten minutes of the meeting. They couldn't; they weren't going to be photocopying them. They weren't going to uh, take photographs of them, but they went in to view those handwritten uh, minutes of the meeting, and. The one who gave them permission to do this was actually from the Ford Foundation. And uh, he gave the Reese Commission, which was a commission of the United States Congress, to go in and to examine those minutes. Well, somebody who had kind of an inside knowledge who was on the investigating team uh, suggested to look at the minutes from particular meetings because they knew what some of the things that went on in those meetings. The person who gave them permission did not even know what was in those meetings. This is decades later than some of the meetings that they were concerned with, which was prior and during World War One, 
etc., when they were formulating this idea of changing the way in which Americans viewed history. Now, this is fairly well documented as a matter of congressional record, uh, some of the findings of the Reese Commission, and uh, it was the Reese Commission was started because there was believed that some of these philanthropic organizations were engaged in what was considered un-American activities. And in the course, and you can see, you can listen to interviews of, of some of the investigative uh, people uh, that were in this particular commission. And uh, we have those at Preparing You. Just look up Reese Commission, R-E-E-C-E. And uh, and we have those recordings available. And uh, before... I even found out about the Reese Commission and its findings. I had already noticed the results of the efforts that came out of these meetings of these philanthropic organizations. And you can, you can trace the history of these events that, that were created out of these meetings simply as a matter of record. It's not a secret. You just have to put it together. And there have been some people who have put some of these things together on their own, uh, Tim Penny's investigations, other people, uh, uh, Shafley's, uh, Shafley, Senator Shafley, I think it is, uh, investigations of the same kind of thing. And it's, it's very obvious that somebody has changed the way in which Americans view history by changing the history books. And they did this originally by simply deleting certain information from common knowledge by not including them in the history books that your kids were going to read in school. And you aren't going to notice the change so much because it's just omission. They just leave certain things out and you get some information but not all the information. And this changes the way in which you view things because you don't have the whole truth. Now, this is not a new idea. This has been around for century upon century upon century. It's since the time of Christ. You can even go back uh, to the Septuagint and uh, that, that original Greek translation. If you just change a few things so that you don't understand the whole picture, you get something less than the truth. Well, something less than the truth is a lie. Now, the problem today is people are seeing when they look at this 1619 project that's coming out of the New York Times, immediately a great many historians were looking at this and saying, well, this is distorting the truth. This is not giving you a clear picture of history. And so they started the, uh, I think it's 1776 project, <laughs> uh, where they are countering this misinformation that is coming out of these historians, which they're not, the 1619 Project is not a new thing. Um, Howard Zinn was doing this kind of stuff already. And a lot of people were, you know, a lot of historians were pointing out that Howard Zinn was giving everybody a distorted view of history. But it's what has been officially been handed down now through high schools and through colleges and people seem to gravitate towards 
the outlandish lie. That was one of the things Hitler talked about is that you tell a big lie. Don't tell little lies. Tell a really big lie and keep repeating it. And and people, because it is so different, and because people know that knowledge is power. So even though it's misinformation, it is so different, people will grasp onto it because they think, well, I know something you don't know. I mean, we we see little children playing that game. I know something you don't know. And, and that's very common because we instinctively know that knowledge is power. If you know something that somebody else does, else does not know, that gives you an advantage. The problem is, is that if what you know ain't so, you're really the one who's at a disadvantage because you know something that just ain't so. But you think it's true and you're acting upon it. So anyway, I put together a number of notes. I read a number of the articles that uh, were coming out in this uh, uh, 1619 project. And I was seeing all the, you know, my own studies of history because I've read so many history books I can't even, I can't even imagine the number because I read all the school history books, grade school history books, high school history books, even many college history books, uh, going back to the 1800s and in the early 1900s. And this is when I was discovering, I was just looking for history books for my own children who are, I was homeschooling out here on the desert. And uh, I was looking for really good history books because I had had history books when I went to uh, St. Joseph's College in California and into uh, and the different high schools that I had gone to. And some of them were pretty good history books. I've read some of Shalom Ash's history books, uh, which were more historical novels. But he gave you lots of insights into the time because he understood how people lived at the time. Uh, one of the best history books I ever read was uh, uh, 1492 to 1892. It was a history of America. And it really brought a lot of these events in history alive because you were actually referring to letters and statements and reports by people who lived in that time. And you got a much clearer picture. Uh, American Writings was another uh, two-volume set of early Americans and them writing about the times in which they were actually living history. And it gives you a different view than just simply reading somebody's opinion. But in all these history books, I realized that something was going on because if I had read the the 1945 version of history or the 1960 version of history or the 1980 version of history, I would get a different view of history than if I read that 1492 to 1892 book or many of the other books. And I was noticing certain items that were disappearing from the history books. And that, like I said, this was long before I even knew about the Reese Commission. But that was verifying, verifying to me that there was this omission going on in our study of history. Well, like I said, this is the same thing that has gone on in our study of the Bible. And our view of the Bible. Uh, we have a view of the Old Testament that is just inaccurate. 
It is, it, it, we can take this same exact text you have, King James text of the Old Testament, but with additional information about that time, about that language, about what people were actually doing, about how societies operate and how social structures affect the thinking of the people. We can get an entirely different view of the Old Testament than is pro- uh, prominently common in American churches or in churches around the world. We are, have a distorted view of the Old Testament. Now, because we have a distorted view of the Old Testament, that makes us more vulnerable to a distorted view of the New Testament. We can actually think we're reading certain things in the New Testament, events, interactions of people, and not fully understand them because we don't understand the time in which they were taking place nor do we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a witness to the character of God. The New Testament is a witness to the character of of God. These two witnesses are telling and should be in agreement to the character of God because God is the same today as he was back then. But we hear people talking about the vengeful Old Testament God. And Christ tells us about a new God that loves one another. I tell you that the Old Testament is telling you about a loving God. It is telling you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Old Testament that says to love your neighbor as yourself. It is the Old Testament of Moses who says give drink to your enemy. It is the Old Testament that tells you about the red heifer, the sacrifice of the red heifer, which was foreign aid to people outside of your society, outside of your community. And you were helping those people. You were caring for those people that were outside of Israel through the sacrifice of the red heifer. And we have articles up at Preparing You where you can go and read about the sacrifice of the red heifer so that you can understand what those Old Testament events were really all about. It briefly talks about the sacrifice of the red heifer in the Old Testament. It doesn't go on and on about it in many of the other books. You just find it in, in a few isolated locations in the Old Testament. But once you understand what the sacrifice of the red heifer is, it will start to change your whole view of what the altars of clay were, what the altars of stone were, what they were doing at these things that we call sacrifice and um, these rituals. And 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 one of the things that I was going to talk to you today about, we will touch on because I, I will do this probably in the second show or our show later this afternoon is this idea of a church, uh, this idea of a temple. Originally, the word church had nothing to do with a location or a building. But yet, when we say the word church today, most people are thinking a location, a building, even an institution of men. If we say the word temple, you think of a temple, you know, some statues and and pillars in, uh, in Greece or, or whatever. Those are temples. Temples were not a building either originally. The word didn't have anything to do with a building. They built 
buildings where there were temples. So what was a temple? It was actually an area. It was a place that people went to do certain functions in society. Certain events in society took place in the temple area before there was ever a building there. They built the buildings later on and then we begin to call those buildings temples. It's the same way with the word church. Originally the word church had nothing to do with a building. The church in the wilderness had nothing to do with a building. It had to do with a group of people called out to provide a certain function in society. That's what the church was. These people called out. That's why they refer to the church in the wilderness. There's about 140 places that the word church shows up in the New Testament. You don't find the word church in the Old Testament. You only find it in the New Testament. And almost every place it's translated from that single word ecclesia, which means called out. So the church was the called out. Who was called out? Well, in the Old Testament, the called out, the church in the wilderness was the Levites, In the New Testament, it was the apostles, the 120 in the upper room, the 70, the Sanhedrin of Jesus Christ. These people were called out to provide a certain service or function in a society that we eventually knew as Christianity, the Christian society. And what they were doing, once we understand what was actually going on in their day-to-day activities we may find out that what is posing as the church today isn't really the church established by Jesus Christ. And it will be up to you to figure out what to do about that uh, because Christ was about giving you a choice, life or death. And that was your choice. You choose to follow the ways of Christ. If you believed in Christ, you would do the things that he said. He says, why... You know, why call me Lord and not do the things that I say? You know, and so are you, is your church, wherever you go to and you think that's going to church, is it doing what Christ said to do? What Christ commanded us to do? Because he was the the word Christ even. It means the anointed. It means the Messiah. It means the Messiah. It means the King. There is... Another king, one Jesus. That's what it tells us in the New Testament. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. People say, well, the Jews didn't accept him. The apostles accepted him. The 120 in the upper room accepted him. The Sanhedrin of Christ accepted him. The 70 that he chose, that was his Sanhedrin. They accepted him. Thousands accepted him at at Pentecost. Day after day, thousands upon thousands of heads of families accepted Jesus as the Christ. And these are the ones who said there is another king, one Jesus. And they began to do something, some things that were different than everybody else, which brought about jealousy and persecution. What were they doing that you're not doing today? What were they doing that made them Christians that you're not doing today? Because something is missing, some information is missing from your understanding of Christ and the gospel of the kingdom 
And that's what you need to find out what that is. And when you find out what that is, it may change your thinking. If it changes your thinking, that's repentance. Because that's what repentance is, changing your thinking. So anyway, we're going to look at this 1619 project just to show you how the process of changing the way in which people view history takes place. Because that's what's taken place in America. That's what's taken place in the whole world. But we can see in the 1619 Project, it's dealing mostly with the American. Their aim, they say, is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contribution of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Now, there is a lot to learn about what early blacks uh, were doing to change the course of American history. The same can be said of early American Indians. Now, most of the American Indians died out in in the in what we know as the United States, but even in Canada and in South America. Because of disease. Disease went rampant through their culture because they did not have a robust immune system. And the new diseases brought by Europeans to America annihilated the Indians by the thousands and thousands. It it caused their whole tribes to almost disappear because of these diseases. Now, to be fair... There were diseases here in America that also affected Europeans. And Europeans died by the thousands as they came over here to America and were un, their bodies were unfamiliar with the diseases that were here. And they died by the tens of thousands. Malaria and the, and the fevers that went on in uh, the southern uh, tropics uh, killed off Tens of thousands of Europeans, but tens of thousands of Europeans kept coming. And it is very clear that they had a more robust immune system. And they had that because millions upon millions of Europeans had died off in the centuries prior to discovering America, or prior to the immigration to America, when they had the plagues that ran through Europe. And those plagues ran through Europe because they developed trade routes and that spread the plagues. Today in the news, we're hearing about the coronavirus. Actually, I've had the coronavirus, a coronavirus, not the coronavirus. That's the thing is, coronavirus has been around for decades upon decades, but there's different strains of it. SARS is a a strain of the coronavirus. Most flu viruses that travel around are coronaviruses. They're just different strains. Now, the particular one that everybody's worked up about, they're worked up about it because the media is hyping up the the ability of the coronavirus to spread. And they're making it seem like, oh, it's a great threat. When we come back to Keys of the Kingdom, I'll tell you what the actual statistical threat of the new Wuhan coronavirus has been so far. I mean, it's just a matter of public record. But you won't get this in most of the media. But you will get it here on Keys of the Kingdom. But we'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I was mentioning the coronavirus, which everybody was supposedly worried about. And the reality is is that SARS was, as I mentioned before, was a coronavirus. And there were actually a couple different strains of SARS. And what happens is when these strains get out into the public, they begin to 
seem to begin to mellow. What actually is happening to some degree is that the people are developing a natural immunity to these different viruses. And that's part of that developing of a robust immune system in society. But how you develop that robust immune system will vary. If you if you get all your immunity from vaccinations, you're cutting out major portions of your own immune system in the process of developing personal protection against disease because you're interfering with the natural course of a disease in your body because you're jumping in with this uh, injection of a vaccine into your body, which is stimulating your body. Does The vaccine doesn't make you immune. It's stimulating your body to become immune. Uh, just recently, I've seen several people in our community have gotten a disease that is affected the actual bone marrow of their body where they're not producing the red blood cells that they normally would produce and that this is causing them to become anemic and have to have blood transfusion and that they call it a form of cancer. And what actually appears to be happening is that something is causing their bone marrow not to produce the red blood cells that it it uh, normally does. And so it's a form of what they call leukemia. There's a number of different kinds of leukemia. If you get early vaccinations you're probably less likely to get childhood leukemia. That's a statistical fact. You can actually research that and find that that's a statistical fact. And the reason why appears to be, because that's what a lot of this has to do with correlation, appears to be the fact that when you get these vaccinations, it's causing your bone marrow to produce certain hemoglobins and other factors in your immune system are jumped up in numbers because of the introduction of the vaccine. Now, there are a number of things in the vaccine that may be causing this. But anyway, that gives you kind of an immunity while you have these elevated counts from things like leukemia, childhood leukemia. But, here's a question, I can't prove it, but what happens if that overstimulation at a young age causes your body to need that stimulation again at an older age, which makes you more susceptible to adult leukemia later on in life when you're only in your 40s. Well, all of a sudden you come down with leukemia because your blood, your bone marrow is not producing the hemoglobin blood cells that it had produced when you were a child because of those vaccinations. Have they created an imbalance in your natural immune system which is causing people to come down with adult leukemia? Well, there are scientists who are looking at that and are suspecting that that might be the case but it requires money and studies in order to kind of follow it up and find out. But I'm suspecting that that is the case. So what's happening when you're getting immunity from all these flu viruses by injection. That's what they're out there trying to figure out, the new new flu virus vaccine that you can get to prevent this new strain, uh, this Wuhan coronavirus, from getting into people's body and making them sick. Well, the few cases that they have here in America, one of them had no foreign contact that they can trace 
somehow or other he got this Wuhan virus and uh, he come down ill and they don't know how he got it. It's, it seems to spread simply by being airborne. It doesn't, you don't actually have to touch doorknobs and stuff, stuff like that. But uh, you can actually get it because, through the air, which makes it a little bit easier to spread. But also, he w- got this virus and nobody knows where he got it from, which means that people can get it and not show a lot of symptoms. And that means those people are getting immune in in society. It's like the polio virus. Most of the people, when they finally came out with a vaccine, most of the people were probably already immune to polio. Because 95, we know, CDC will tell you, 95% of the people who got polio never showed any visible symptoms. But they got a lifetime immunity from that exposure. But they never showed any visible symptoms. And of the 5% that did show visible symptoms, many of them did not have lasting effects from the symptoms they did show. They got sick. They got better. And they were lifetime immunity. So you get like 97, 98% of the people developing immunity with no vaccine whatsoever. Same thing went on with the Spanish flu. Same thing went on with most flus. And the same thing is probably going on right now with the coronavirus. The death rate that they now publish from what they believe is the death rate based on proven cases of this particular Wuhan coronavirus is at the, seems to be at a maximum of 2%. That's a very low death rate for flu viruses. SARS was up in the 9%. One strain of SARS actually had like 30% death rate. That's high death rates. 2% is not very high death rate. That's like a few old people, some people with compromised lungs already. Other complications will set in and cause the, a 2% death rate. Some figures show a death rate of only 0.5%. That's less than half a percent of the people who get it die from it. That's an extremely low death rate. Yet we see pandemonium in the news. Stock markets affected everything. Why? Because knowledge is power. And false information is just as powerful as the truth. If you believe what you're hearing to be true without looking into things with greater depth. And so when we look at this 1619 project and uh, these guys from the 1776 group are, are examining the 1619 project, they find out that so much of the information that is coming out in like the New York Times and these other people who are republishing this stuff. And it's already in your school books. Your kids are already learning this in college. You're paying people to brainwash your children with misinformation because you haven't looked into things. Because you you haven't been responsible individuals. This morning I was up early checking on the sheep out here on the desert and uh, I saw an ad for the 2020 campaign of President Trump, who's going to be running again for his second term of office. It was a pretty effective ad, probably. For people who don't already hate Trump, it would probably be effective. But they're talking about saving your republic, saving your nation, because you elect this one individual as if Trump is your salvation. Trump is not your salvation. 
Christ is your salvation. But it doesn't do any good to tell me you love Christ and not do the things that he says. Because he says, it's not those who say, Lord, Lord. Not those who say, I have accepted Jesus into my heart as my personal Savior. Not those who just say that. But those who actually do the will of the Father. And people have created a whole theology around a few statements of Paul. Where he says that all you have to do is believe. But you have to really believe. You can't just say you believe. You have to really believe. And Paul is very clear, pointing out with his long list of people that have no inheritance in the kingdom, that what you do tells you and us whether you really believe. If you're gossiping, if you're doing all these long things that he talks about, coveting your neighbor's goods and all these things, that he says that you you have no inheritance and that we should have nothing to do with you if you're doing any of these long listed off things that we have, you can read about them in different parts of his uh, epistles, that you're not a believer in Christ. Because you're, we know you're not because you're doing these things. Why call me Lord and not do the things that I, if you love me, if you really love Christ, you will do what he says. Now, a lot of people, they want to think they love Christ. They want to think they know history. They want to think they understand the Bible. But they're not doing what the Bible says, what Christ said. They're actually doing the absolute opposite of what Christ said. And they pay ministers a lot of money to make it look like they are saved. Like they do know the truth. That they, the same as you pay money to send your kids to a college that is, or a university that is going to brainwash your children into thinking a lie is the truth. You're actually going to pay people to brainwash your children. Of course, you, you actually do that when you send them to public schools. You pay through taxation. Everybody, there is no free education in the United States. All education in the United States is paid for. I shouldn't say none. When I homeschooled my kids, I guess I did pay. I paid in time and energy and everything, but I gave it to my children for free. I didn't, I'm not billing them now, (laughs) so so to speak. When you send your kids to public school, somebody's got to pay for that service. And you're content with forcing your neighbor to pay through taxation for your child's education. But the problem is it's your child's brainwashing that you're actually paying for because you haven't taken the time to find out how they have been altering those school books for over a century. Slowly been deleting information and changing. This 1619 project, now when I read some of the things that they state, where they they say it's finally time to tell our story truthfully. No, that's not what they're doing. They're saying that. I, I mean, I heard the other day on uh, the media uh, was a, a Booty Judge and AOC Cortez was quoting the Bible about feeding the hungry. We are to feed the hungry through charity. Not through forced offerings. The whole gospel, according to John the Baptist, was that you were not to use force, provide 
bread for the hungry or clothing or shelter or care for the needy of your society. You were to apply charity and provide these things out of charity. That was an essential element of the Christian message from the beginning. It is really an essential element of the message of Moses. There was health care in Egypt for the Israelites. We have this B-movie, uh, maybe not even B-movie, you know, Charlton Heston view that everybody was down in the mud pits and dying. And there were people probably in the mud pits that were dying of hard work and, and labor. But it's basically the, the law was 20% of what you produced had to go to the pharaoh. So that means 20% of your work year went to the pharaoh. So you would actually go. There were people who went and worked in the mud pits for 20% of the time. And there were some people who worked there year-round, but they were taking somebody else's place. And that's the way in which they paid their tax. It was called a corvée in the French. It's a statutory system where you had to give a portion of your labor to the state. And you, you have that now in the United States. You have that in every country where a portion of your labor belongs to the state. Now, in Egypt, it was only 20%. That was the maximum amount that you could charge on income on on your labor to the state. And that was to be a law forever in Egypt. And it still is a law that way in Egypt. But in some countries, you have to, like Sweden, you can pay 50%. Uh, Denmark, 50%. Uh, even if you're in a low-income br- bracket, you know, what would almost be considered poverty wages in Sweden, you will still pay about 30%. And it's the same way in the United States, except for we don't have quite as high a rates as they do, but they still have a lot more socialist programs than the United States. The United States does, Stu is a kind of a sidekick to Glenn Beck. He put out a little film where he talks about why does the right make it out that programs like Social Security and Medicare are socialist programs and will destroy America? And uh, and his answer was because they are socialist programs. And they are. They are socialist programs. Public education, he didn't mention this. Public education is a socialist program. It's part of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto is public education. Most of the people up until 1910 in America were educated in private systems of education, either home-taught or in private schools. There were public schools around, but even then, in 1910, most public schools were heavily funded by private contributions. They weren't all funded by taxation. This idea of the government paying for your education, now they want to pay for your student loans and all this stuff. Government doesn't pay for student loans. Your neighbor is going to pay for those student loans. The government's just there to make them pay. This is a covetous practice. This people don't see. They don't put this information together. Instead, they have things like the 1619 Project that is going out there and rewriting American history, rewriting the information that's in your head so that you do not understand your real history and what really drives society. 
So anyway, they start off talking about the 20 enslaved Africans who were brought to the colonies, as if that is the first slaves in the colonies. No, the first slave in the colony was an indentured man who ran away and absconded from fulfilling his indenture, which was like a seven-year indenture. That's a biblical concept, but that was around seven years was usually the maximum of your indenture. But because he ran away and cheated on his indenture and cheated his employer who had paid something for that indenture, the court ruled that he was indentured for the rest of his life. That's slavery. It wasn't just a temporary indenture now. Now he has to work for this man for the rest of his life because he absconded. Now that may not have been a fair judgment, but that was the first slave in America, the official slave by statute in America. The owner of the man was a black man who sued the court, sued that man to the court that he would have to work for him forever now because he had absconded on his uh, indenture. So the first slave owner, official statutory slave owner in America was a black man who owned another man. (laughs) So the idea that this is a white institution is ridiculous. Slavery was around. Indians had slavery. We have a page at Preparing You. You can go read it. Uh, just look up the word divide up there in the uh, search engine up there. And it's about dividing and conquering. They want you to think in terms of black and white. They want you to think in terms of race. Slavery was not a racial issue. The uh, Whites were enslaved in North Africa far more than blacks were ever enslaved in America. Far more. Whites were sold into slavery. Children, women, men were sold into slavery in North Africa to mostly black people or people of color anyway uh, by Muslims and what have you. And this went on for hundreds of years, for centuries. And there were far more whites sold in North Africa than there were blacks sold in America. Now, if you count all the people that were sold into slavery in South America and everything, the numbers may may vary there. I don't know exactly the statistics. But the reality is slavery was not limited to any particular race. Blacks enslaved blacks. Indians enslaved Indians. Whites enslaved whites. And they also crossed over into racial areas. What is the effect of that slavery on society 10 years later, 50 years later, 100 years later? We would like to think, a lot of people would like you to think that most of the problem problems in the black community is a result of the slavery before 1866 and the Civil War which freed supposedly freed the slaves. That's the, that's the narrative that we have. That is not the problem in the black community today. The problem in the black community today is the slavery that came with Social Security. The slavery that came with the indenture of our labor in exchange for benefits from the federal government. That's what's taking place with Social Security. It's the indenturing. Of you're, you're signing into a system where a portion of your labor can now be taken from you to provide taxes for the government who will in turn provide for you 
benefits, such as old age uh, benefits, uh, health, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, all these things are associated with the Social Security number. It's all a part of the same system. And your labor is now a part of that system. You're now a surety for the debt of that system. You have to, you know, people worry about Social Security going bankrupt. Social Security was bankrupt on day one because there is no division of funds. This is ruled over and over again in the courts. The reason we went to Social Security, the reason it was offered to us by FDR, and we have whole books on this subject that are free online, articles that go through and quote the actual authors of the system and how that all went down, how they formulated, was because the United States was already in a recession because it was bankrupt. It was out of assets, and it, and the Federal Reserve was not going to loan more money into circulation without more security. You're the security. You're the surety for the debt. When they implemented Social Security and people started signing up for that, you were becoming a surety for the debt of the United States. And your labor now pays that debt, or at least the interest on that debt. If you don't understand these things, you're going to have a, a confused view of history. You're going to have a confused view of what's actually going on in the news. And, of course, this 1619 project is just going to add to that confusion already because you don't know the law, you don't know history, you don't know the American... I mean, most people, if you ask them, why did we fight the American... Actually... You know, you see these people like uh, Will Witt asking people on the streets, you know, who fought in the American Revolution? People don't even know who fought in the American Revolution. The fact that you can find anybody, I, I'd like to know. I hope he finds more people with the right answer. But an awful lot of people have don't even know who fought in the American Revolution. They don't know why. I mean, the, the reasons why there was an American so-called, so-called revolution is listed in the Declaration of Independence. Because of these usurpations of the king, was the king was revolting against the existing agreements that we had in government. And they go down the list. One of the things they commonly used to list was taxation without representation. That phrase isn't in the text. It doesn't say that in the text. It's, as a matter of fact, you can't even hardly find that phrase written anywhere in any text of the time. What you find is taxation without consent. And the consent is the individual consent, not collective consent. Because the United States was not a democracy, it was a republic. All these little items that are missing from your knowledge and education allows the 1619 Project to be published and people don't know what a lie it really is and how it's distorting the views of the American public and they call it reframing their understanding of history. But it's actually brainwashing people. They're able to do this because you were already brainwashed. Even the 1776 people who are coming out and pointing out this is ridiculous, this information that they're publishing, already becoming a part of curriculum. Actually, it had already, much of this had already been part of the curriculum for a number of years. They don't 
they don't even understand how much because they themselves have been brainwashed by this the activities that we see beginning in 1908 on up through the changing of the textbooks and what was in the textbooks. They think that the American Revolution was fought because of taxation without representation, but it was taxation without consent because the colonial charters already stated that the king could not impose these taxes on landed Americans in the colonies. This was even argued in the parliament by Englishmen against the king, saying you can't impose these taxes in America. You can do it anywhere else in in his colonies. In Australia, he could do it, but not in America because of the colonial charters. That is dismissing from the common information. And you can tell historians this, and they will they will argue with you without actually reading the charters. And to even get the copies of the charters is is a bit of a chore these days. But anyway, we'll go over some of the things in the 1619 Project to give you a heads up to get you so that you can understand how easy it is to lie and change the way in which you think, reframe the way in which you think, because this is what's happened concerning the Bible as well. But we'll do that when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we were talking about this 1619 project, which is distorting the way in which Americans view history, which is just a continuation of what began way back in 1908. And actually probably began long before that, but just I know that in 1908 were some of the first meetings of these philanthropic organizations to alter what was in your history books. And they had the money to do it. They under Guggenheim Foundation under wrote the uh, education of about 50 scholars and then got them to rewrite the books and the Carnegie Foundation and other foundations helped reprint the books and then made those books available at a lower rate that, uh, to go into the schools than uh, what someone who was in a free enterprise system would be able to provide. And they were able to get their books in place and slowly began to alter the way in which Americans viewed history. They had approached people like Charles and Mary Beard. And a lot of these things I knew about before I ever knew about the Reese Commission. But anyway, now we see the 1619 Project being presented by the New York Times magazine. And it is distorting even more information and that has a subtle blank field in which to do this because most kids haven't been taught history at all. That's one of the things they had to do. They took history out of the schools almost entirely and then they introduced things like social studies, whatever that is, and they began to change the way in which kids' minds even formulated around history because they didn't know history. This made it easier for the next generation to be taught a false history. And, of course, with Howard Zinn and people like that, and an army of people in the the, uh, liberal universities and colleges began to teach this, literally, the history of hate. And the reality is is that uh, slavery was ended in this country not because of hate. 
but because of more noble sentiments. Although they were not even pure. It's really a very small minority of people that begin to alter the course of society, like a rudder in a ship. They begin to alter the course of society because they take a moral stance. The abolition movement took a moral stance. This is mostly white people who took a moral stance in defense of freeing the slaves. My own great-great-grandfather was smuggling slaves in the Underground Railroad in Virginia to, to help people get to freedom. And he was kicked out of the Quaker church because he did that and then he was allowed into the schism Quakers which were the ones who were willing to do that to to smuggle slaves in the Underground Railroad. And that that's a whole complicated uh, to understand what was even going on back then. People like to put these down into kind of commercial type uh venues where they think a particular couple of thoughts and their brain falls into that pattern. I'm a very slow reader. When I read, I, I'm by most people's standards, I don't read very fast. I just put a lot of time and effort into it. I retain a lot of what I have read before, or at least I used to. I may not do it as well as I used to. But the reason I'm a slow reader is I'm connecting the dots of what I'm reading now. I'm connecting it with all the other information that I've accumulated and weighing it against that other information to find out what is really true and what is not really true. And so when I see them talking about that, that this is what 1619 Projects wants to make you think, for one thing, they have this one statement, their arrival inaugurated these 20 black slaves, inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for uh, the next 250 years. Inaugurated acts like chattel slavery just began in America at that time. Chattel slavery was here before white men even came here. The Indians were doing it. To a great degree, there was a lot of slavery. South American Indians, whole segments of the population were enslaved. It was the conquistadors who rallied with these oppressed slaves to overthrow the regimes of the time that were killing people off and murdering people and enslaving people by the tens of thousands. Uh, 400 conquistadors, even with the muskets that they had then, could not have defeated those natives. What defeated them was the large number of oppressed population who joined with the Spanish to defeat the dictatorial regimes that had been enslaving people to the tune of tens of thousands and millions of people over hundreds of years. Same thing was going on amongst the Indian tribes. The bigger, more powerful Indian tribes had enslaved other Indians. This is very common. And uh, there is a certain slavery, uh, kind of an indentured slavery, such as, you know, in reading the book uh, Journey Through Paradise by Andrew Garcia, he talks about a Nespers Indian who was left for dead supposedly paid to be taken care of by Gros Ventry Indians. And as soon as the Gros Ventry Indians found out that they could not get paid for her when turning her over to the soldiers, they just dumped her on the ground and moved on. And 
some Pendereal Indians found her and took her into their house and nursed her back to health. And because they nursed her back to health, she stayed and worked for them in a form of indenture. But there's no contract. It was just like, you saved my life. I'm with you now. We have to work together to survive. And so now I'm become a servant in the household. They understood that, that payback that somebody had, they wanted to pay back. And uh, eventually, uh, Andrew Garcia marries in Hulais. And that's part of the story. It goes on. But the point is that idea of indenture, the idea of slavery, uh, there was a lot of slavery amongst the more powerful tribes where you you were a slave. If you tried to escape, they would hunt you down and kill you. <laughs> so uh, that was going on before any blacks arrived in America. Uh, they refer to it as barbaric system. Actually, we talked a, a couple of weeks ago about in history how when Caesar went up to Gaul, he wasn't yet Caesar. He was Caesar was his name. That wasn't the office. He was just a commander in chief of a military operation. He went up there, and over a million Gauls were sold into slavery. That was not a barbaric system. The, or after remember, the Gauls were barbarians. The Teutons were barbarians. That was the civilized system of Roman law that allowed those people to be sold into chattel slavery which made lots of money for Caesar which allowed him to pay for a bigger and bigger army and we explained how that all changed by changing a few simple things in society in the culture of Rome in the laws of Rome put them on a road towards this uh, system of chattel civil chattel slavery that brought about the downfall of Rome, predicted over a hundred years before Caesar by Polybius, where he said that the people would become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others. And this would alter the nature of society. It would degenerate the people of society until they had once more a monarch and a king, a, a despot. And of course, that is the course of history. That's what went on in America when we became dependent upon our neighbors' money to provide free education in public schools for our children. We took a turn in society. We went away from the idea of paying for our own child's education and then through charity, providing education for our neighbor's child. We went away from that and went to the government and we made the government our benefactor and we said, you provide free education by taking away from our neighbor. This was moving away from the principles of Christianity, the principles of Judaism, because Moses did not force taxes. There were no forced taxations of any kind, of of any amount reasonable in Israel. It was all free will offerings. That's what they called them, free will offerings. And they provided for the government through free will offerings. Everybody was a member of the militia. Everybody was to arm their own families and come together for the defense of society. Same thing went on in America. The original public schools were not built by taxes. They were built by the militia 
who voluntarily built the first public schools in Virginia. That's the way it was operating. We don't do that anymore. Now we depend upon forcing our neighbor to contribute to our child's education, our welfare, our the care of our parents, the the care of Medicare, Medicaid, all these things are through forced taxation. This is a divergence away from Christianity. This is not a barbaric system. This is a civil system. The barbarians didn't do it that way. The barbarians operated by a militia. (laughs) Barbarians operated by free will offerings. Most of them. Some of them began to change and take on some of these other. And we've told stories about that. Uh, Herman the German and the rest of them. When they started straying from this formula of a voluntary society, it began to alter the nature of society and the members of society. But this 1619 project wants to think, wants you to think that out of slavery grew nearly everything that is truly considered American. And that's, and that is true that the blacks that came here had a tremendous effect on American culture. The same as the Indians who were already here had a tremendous effect on American culture. As same as the Irish who came here, the Scots who came here, the French who came here. Uh, I used to always refer to, you know, everybody in Europe are all those people who missed the boat. Uh, people who came to America came here to, at, often at great risk and great expense, to try to become free. I mean, many of the Hessians who fought against us in the American Revolution, the hired soldiers, uh, hired by the king, ended up becoming settlers in America because they liked what they saw. They saw the freedom. They saw the potential. They saw the opportunity, uh, the equal opportunity for those who wanted to apply themselves. And that's why they came here to America. That's why they settled in America. Those Hessians had a tremendous effect on the American culture. What is now having a tremendous effect on the American culture is public education at the expense of your neighbor, public health at the expense of your neighbor, uh, welfare at the expense of your neighbor, through men who exercise authority one over the other instead of through charity. This, what made America great is we took care of all the social welfare needs of the people through charity, not through the government. So when I looked at that commercial for Trump in 2020, what made America great was the fact that we took care of one another through free will offerings. This is what Christianity was all about. This was the conflict between Christianity and the Roman system. Because the Roman system had moved to a socialist system where they forced the contributions, usually of their enemy at first, but eventually of Romans. And they taxed, of course, they wanted to tax just the rich. uh, But, of course, eventually you run out of rich people's money and you have to tax somebody else. But it brought in corruption. It brought in destruction of society. So the idea that chattel slavery had an effect on American culture, absolutely. But the idea that uh, its economic might, its industrial powers were caused by the, the enslaving of the blacks, not so. And we'll get into that eventually. We'll show you that most of the uh, industrial might of America was in the north. Not just a little bit larger percentage, but many times more than in the south. Slavery crippled the south. 
Slavery crippled America. Slavery degenerated America. The same as your social welfare systems today, your social security systems today is crippling America so that you do no more ought for your parents. It's the government's job to take care of your parents. It's not your job anymore. This is changing. It's degenerating Americans. And you're not going to become a great nation again by simply electing a president. You can only become a great nation again by changing the way you think and act upon that thinking. You have to become actual, real Christians. Not fake Christians. Not, you know, fake uh, history like we're seeing coming out of the 1619 Project. But real Christians. But they they actually make reference to slavery that brought about our electoral system. Nonsense. Uh, they talk about diet and popular music. Well, I can tell you this. that The black diet back in uh, 1920s, you can just look at pictures of crowds of black people in Chicago and what have you. Uh, their diet was... Evidently very good. Everybody looked healthy. Everybody looked strong. Everybody looked uh, clean and uh, well-proportioned. But by the 1960s, that had all changed. That was not black slavery that changed that. That was, that was uh, the influence of other things in our society that changed the diet of our society. Uh, but anyway, so the music, popular music, yes, the black music, the music that came out of the black community had a tremendous effect on uh, Americans. But music grew, grew out of uh, the, the Ozarks and uh, country, uh, Western music, all these different kinds of music. And you have to go back and study the history of these. Much of this came from Ireland. Ireland. When they refused to let, it was against the law to teach an Irishman to read, according to the British. You were not to teach them to read. The same as supposedly amongst many of the blacks. They weren't to teach blacks to read. Uh, there were people who were against that idea of teaching blacks to read. There were, of course, many people who were doing it. And many blacks learned to read. And the same as many Irish learned to read. But in keeping the Irish from learning to read... When they did begin to read and write, many great Irish authors appeared. Why? Because nature finds a way. And when you weren't teaching them to read, they were learning to tell stories. They were learning to pass on information through telling the stories. When they learned to read, that gift to their society, the oppression that had occurred in their society, caused them to progress in, in a much greater way when they had the tools to do so. We see the same in the black community. How many blacks were extremely successful? Some of the first millionaires in America were blacks, believe it or not. Uh, Business-wise, blacks were doing great. Family-wise, blacks were doing great after the Civil War. Now, there was oppression around, but out of that oppression came stronger communities, stronger uh uh, religious significance in those communities. The thread passed through those communities and on to the next generation. What has crippled American society and the black community is the enslavement of the other part of the society to provide them with welfare. 
this idea of reparations is a destructive idea. It is destroying the incentive of the black community. And to put all that together, you have to start connecting all these dots. And I'm not covering them all here. I'm just running through some of the things that they try to attribute everything. They they even attribute the penchants for violence in America on the fact that we enslave the blacks. The reality is, where does all the violence come from in, in Africa? Uh, there's all kinds of violence in Africa. Uh, what the amount of violence in America, the amount of abuse in America of slaves, was far less than you'll find in Haiti or in South uh, South America. Uh, we were much more humane here. Was there atrocities? Absolutely. Anytime you give people power over another section of society, you're going to find that abuse. This whole idea of social welfare by the hands of the state instead of by the hands of charity is empowering the state. Nobody is talking about, they're talking about empowering Trump to fix things. When Trump is only going to get four more years at the most, he's only a heartbeat away from being replaced. The governments will not change until people change. You have to take back your personal responsibilities for yourself, for your family, and for your neighbor in a communion of society, which we call community. That's what community is. It's when society begins to take care of one another. And if they don't do it through charity, if they don't do it through voluntary means, they will be altered and their society will centralize power and bring about despotism and destruction. Uh, I read the 1776 uh, people saying, sorry, New York Times, but America began in 1776. Well, actually, the United States began uh, actually about 1796 or so. But uh, there was, America was around long before that. Our history, the people that were here, the early pilgrims, what they went through in Europe before they came here. That's when our history began with Adam and Eve. Uh, it began tens of thousands of years ago. That's the whole thing about history is it doesn't begin begin on a certain date. You can apply it to a certain date. This 1619, which attempts to link everything from non-socialized medicine to American sugar consumption to the historical slavery is simply not true. And there are historians like Gordon Wood, uh, one of US le- uh, USA's leading historians, uh, of the Revolutionary War has been sharply critical of the 1619 Project. Even when I read their criticisms uh, of um, people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and some of these other people who are making these different claims, I don't really think that they have a full grasp of how insidious this reframing of American history really is. And we don't really understand these things in their entirety. And I don't know that we need to, but what we need to understand is what actually moves society, what actually controls society, what actually sets up society so that it can be altered internally. Uh, 
by cultural choices that we make outside of our our existing families and our existing communities where we set these trends in society. And like I've given you the example, the idea of Social Security by the hands of the state, by men who exercise authority one over the other. That's what the state is. The state is this system of force. And they're going to take care of the needy of society like AOC and, and Buttigieg was saying that we have to feed the hungry and all this stuff. We have that mandate from Christ. We have that mandate from Christ to do it by charity. If you do it by force, you're contradicting Christ. You're going against Christ because he said, you've seen the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. They are providing benefits by taking from one class of citizen and providing from the other through force. Same as John the Baptist was saying. You don't do it through force. You do it through charity. If you don't do it through charity, you will end up under a dictator. Polybius said it. Plutarch said it. John the Baptist said it. Jesus Christ said it. Moses said it. It's in Deuteronomy. They warn you over and over again that you have to take care of the needy of your society and what they call pure religion through the exercise of charity. So if you want to save your republic, if you want to save your country, you have to do it the way Christ said to do it. That's what it means by Christ is your salvation. Jesus is your salvation. If you do what he said, He said to do this through charity. And he actually gave a command to his called out group. His disciples were his called out. He called out his disciples. He appointed them a kingdom. But they said you can't be like the kingdoms of the Gentiles who exercise authority. You have to do this all through charity. But he did command them to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. Why? Because that is the way in which to implement a voluntary society. By sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and starting to use your God-given conscience to care about the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity in a way that strengthens the poor, that if you do this, you will be saved. Both spiritually and physically saved. Because, and you may have to do this under great duress at times, but it alters you. Just the same as when you decide to take care of the needy of your society by force, it will degenerate you if you decide to take care of the needy of your society through charity, through faith, hope, and charity, through this system of tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded. It will regenerate you emotionally, psychologically. Mentally, physically, it will regenerate you and give you an immunity to the evils of the world that we sometimes see manifest itself in the form of viruses. And even if you get the virus, you will get better. And you will become stronger. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. So, What's happening is we're getting this misinformation from people like Nicole Hannah-Jones. And uh, America wasn't a democracy until black Americans made it one. That's what her article was. It's That's crazy. Besides, you don't want to be a democracy. You want to be a republic. 
And they don't even understand that. So, I mean, like, how do you even have a conversation with these people when they don't even understand some of the basic fundamentals? But anyway, we'll talk more about this when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. And uh, so stay tuned. So welcome back. So we were talking about Gordon Wood, and uh, who was opposing the 1619 Project, and uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was uh, promoting it. And she's one of the authors and wrote that uh, it's absolutely nonsensical. America wasn't a democracy until black Americans made it one. And, of course, like I've, I've talked about many times, until World War II, democracy was considered an evil form of government, a bad thing. It was not promoted by <laughs> the early Americans at all. And uh, you can go all the way back to the Greeks, who had many things to say against the idea of democracy, which is nothing more than 51% of the, the people taking away the rights of the other 49 that's not what America was originally. The USA actually has always been an indirect democracy, the United States government. But it was created in order to rep- protect the republic, to guarantee that republican form of government. But, of course, when the United States government was created, it had very little effect on the average, everyday events of government. And when I say government, I mean government with a small g. It was the governing of the individual by the individual. You know, if there was a a disaster, it was taken care of by the local community or other communities that were linked together with those communities through trade. And they said, oh, they're having trouble here. And I give the example in the little town of Silver Lake when they had a fire and so many people were injured in the fire. People came from the nearby towns by horse and buggy by wagon with blankets and food and supplies to help those people and took the orphans back with them and raised them up. This was community helping community. And we used to have a network of communities that would do that. And that network was created much like the early Israelite network, which was known as Israel, which was simply a network of voluntary groups of people organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to help one another. There was no king in Israel. And it actually was very successful for numerous years. It wasn't until they wanted to create a civil government through electing a king that they got into trouble. And But they were warned what to do. Five different things to put into their constitution to protect them if they decide to have a king with limited power. That that you would put these five things and write them down and read them to them every day. And we point out in the free book online, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, that of those five things, the Bible commands that you put in your constitution. If you're going to have a leader who can exercise authority, only one of them shows up in the U.S. Constitution. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't implement all five of them in your day-to-day life. But you have to take back your responsibilities to implement them in your personal constitution. In your personal way in which you relate to the rest of society. We've become crippled as a society. Because we have gone, we have altered the culture of our society by going a certain way and by neglecting certain responsibilities within society. Woods talks about some of these things, but he doesn't put them together like we do. He did did say 
I was surprised by the scope of this thing, referring to the 1619 Project, since it is going to become the basis for high school education and has the weight of the New York Times behind it. Not only does it have the weight of the New York Times behind it, but it also has Pulitzer Center using its reputation to encourage it to become a part of the 1619 Project curriculum. targeting all grades in your public schools. Now, you're hearing me say this. You may hear other people say it in reading the uh, 1776 countering of the 1619 Project. And people like uh, John Oakes, uh, who's a distinguished professor of history and graduate school of humanities at uh, the City University in New York, he's very critical of this. But even these guys do not have a clear picture of history because they came out of that 1908-1927 alterations of the way in which they learned history. And that their view is somewhat skewed. They have a better understanding than most people, certainly better than Jones's understanding, but they, they are still missing certain elements because this has been a long, century-long process to brainwash the American people so that they don't understand. And they were only able to do that because the religious element of our society distracted us from the true message of the gospel of the kingdom. So you, you just keep going back and going back and going back and finding where the lies began. They make reference to the contemporary black problems have very little to do to today with slavery and we have that article divide at preparing you that goes through lots of different aspects of this that put together over a, a period of months and maybe even years but and we pointed out many times the illegitimacy rate in the black community where where they went from three percent uh of single parent families in 1900s uh, to 11% by 1938. And now, 70 years later, they're at 74% illegitimate single-parent families in the black community. And even in our white community now, 35%, we've hit 35%. But back in 1900, it was only 3%. What the heck went on? Socialism. Free education. Free health care. Free taking care of your parents. You don't have to take care of your parents anymore. The state will do it. All this was preached against by Jesus Christ. In the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was a social welfare system, the sacrifice, that's what Corbin means, other people, was now a tax under Herod and the Pharisees. They forced the people to pay in a tax. At first it sounds real good because it's a very small tax, and it's guaranteeing you these benefits of religion, which was how you took care of the needy of your society. That's what religion was. That's what they were doing in the temples. We have a whole article on the temples, so you can understand that today, Social Security building, where you go, that's your temple. That's where you're going to go to get the care for the needy of your society. To Social Security, welfare offices. These are all your temples today. That's what they were in Rome. So, once you begin to put these things together, you realize, I have to think differently. 
I have to think like Christ told me to think. I have to think like, how am I going to take care of the needy of my society through faith, hope, and charity alone? I am going to have to create bonds in my community where people will actually care about me enough to be there for me when I have a need. That means I'm going to have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and actually start contributing to the needy of society. I get to choose how I'm going to contribute, who I'm going to contribute to, when I'm going to contribute. All these choices are mine. But that's my responsibility as a Christian to figure out how to do that the most efficient way possible. And that's what the early church was doing. When they got baptized, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people in a day. That's the heads of families getting baptized. So that meant everybody, that was, you're talking twenty, thirty thousand, forty thousand people, which is half the population of some of these areas, are going to have to take care of all their social welfare through charity. They're going to have to organize themselves. That's a responsibility. That's a different way of thinking. That's repentance. And that will lead to 3% single parent families. Which is where you have to get back to if you want to make America great again. You have to get back to taking care of one another through charity. You can't just elect a different president and expect a different results. It's not going to change. You have to change. The responsibility is up to you to change. You know, I mean, your opioid epidemic, if it's your responsibility, how many people in the opioid epidemic and the cocaine epidemic and these people shooting up on the side of the road, how are they surviving from day to day? How do they last a month shooting up like that? They're getting a government check. 250,000 addicts are getting Social Security. Not because they're old, but because they're addicts. And they've disabled themselves through addiction. That's billions of dollars going out. You need, and nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, they they have tried to stop the how easy it used to be. I mean, all you had to do is prove that you were a heroin addict before and you get on Social Security. You get a permanent check coming in every month. When my own, one of my sons went down to sign up from so, for Social Security. And we didn't sign up our children for Social Security. We didn't deduct them. Uh, we just, we took care of them ourselves. We were responsible for them ourselves. But eventually, you can't get anywhere in this society hardly without the, that number. You gotta have the number of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> in order to do anything in society, to open up a bank account, to get most jobs and all that kind of stuff. Now, it doesn't have to be. It's not actually law. It's just that everybody thinks that way. So, yeah. And so, most of my kids had to go into the system in order to to go out. And that's okay. As long as they continue to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not, you know, I know, get contacted by people who want to not get their kids' social security numbers. That's an individual choice, but you better start making that choice wisely because you can't get anywhere in this society without that number at this time. Now, eventually this society will collapse. You know, 
you know, will will Trump suddenly die and then things go awry? The pendulum is swinging farther and farther each way. <laughs> and the the debt is, nobody's really dealing with the debt. And nobody's dealing with the bankruptcy of the morality of society. You've got 60 to 70% of the kids graduating from high school think socialism is good. And socialism will destroy a people. It will degenerate the people themselves. You can't get back. You can't get those generations back overnight. Now, there are some kids waking up, some young people waking up and realizing that socialism is bad. But I have never seen before in my long history, over half a century, well over half a century, been watching this going on. I've never seen socialism so popular as it is today. And young people are coming up into the voting age. And the idea that you will, that if you just get Trump elected is nonsense. It's not, you know, he is who he is. That's fine. You have to change. You have to change the way in which you do things. The way in which you think. That's what repentance is. a changing in the way you think. The strategical mission in this 1619 project was only preceded by the, the strategical missions that I've mentioned earlier. As you go read our article on schools as tools at preparing you. And we go through this step by step. And I could go through it in, in greater and greater detail. But the number of articles we have at Preparing You are amazing. And the amount of information. And and people, you know, say, you know, is this a scholarly examination? Well, look at the footnotes. Where are we getting this information from? We show you. The thing is, it's different than what people are used to thinking. You go to Princeton University. I know people went to Princeton. Well, James McPherson has has pointed out that slavery in the U.S. was not unique, but rather only a small part of a larger world process that was unfolding over many centuries. Yeah, that slavery was everywhere. But slavery was not everywhere in America. It was in the North. There were people who opposed it so much they made it illegal. Jefferson wanted... To free the slaves that he inherited. He was not allowed to by law. He wanted to change the law so he could free them. People don't tell you that in this new history. What was actually going on? What were people trying to do to free this? They knew that slavery was degenerating the South. You go Tocqueville. Alexei Tocqueville. He... he, Writes, he traveled all through the South, he traveled through the North, and he writes about what he saw going through the South. And once you understand how society works, you realize that slavery was not making the South prosperous. Temporarily it seemed to, but it was actually degenerating and bankrupting the South. Now, everybody in the South didn't own slaves. Only about 4% of Americans ever even owned slaves. So there were large amounts of people that were not dependent upon slavery, that were actually dependent upon their own efforts and their own... And even amongst many of the people who owned slaves, they those slaves, most slaves ate at the same table as their masters. Most people don't realize that. They have this picture that everything is a giant plantation. There are people out in these little huts. 
That's not the way it worked. It did work that way with some minority of slave owners. Some of the worst brutal slave owners were black slave owners owning other blacks. Brutality is not a racial thing. It's a cultural thing. And the culture in Africa, where a lot of blacks live, was a very violent culture. It was violent in other places in the world as well. That's why when you had a lot of violent people move to Australia because of the uh, uh, prison colony concept. And it brought a lot of violence to Australia. And that has still affected their culture today. Are all Australians violent people? No, absolutely not. Because the pendulum of society will swing from one generation to the next. But if you don't get this big picture, you will be easily manipulated. But the basic things that you need to understand is human compassion. Caring about others. Not just giving them free food, but giving them in a way that strengthens them, which is what you do is you create a network of charity where people have to be a part of the giving to become a part of the receiving. You can take this model to Skid Row, and actually you will even find it in some areas of Skid Row in these tent cities, where people are actually watching each other's backs and developing trust. There's also some of the some of the most wicked people in these same areas, which is causing that societal pendulum to take place. When you're surrounded by wicked people and dangerous people and users and abusers, some people will see that we need to get together to watch each other's back. And they will develop certain loyalties. Now, you have to have this other moral compass moving through society, which is what the Ten Commandments is all about. So that you're not, because I mean, the mafia has loyalty. Jesus talks about that. Thieves and robbers love one another. They they protect one another. But they're still thieves and robbers. So you have to create a society that is not a thief or a robber, nor a society that is covetous of its neighbor's goods. If you are creating a society that is covetous of your neighbor's goods, who wants to take from your neighbor at the by the use of force to obtain what they want, that's not stealing. That's covetousness. Taxation is not theft. Taxation is covetousness. Desiring to get a benefit at the expense of your neighbor. It isn't necessarily theft if your neighbor has signed up for the same system. There may be some theft involved in taxation, but that's usually illegal taxation. Most taxation in America is not illegal. It's not even unconstitutional. A lot of people like to say that, oh, these taxes are unconstitutional. No, these taxes are the result of the contract clause. Because you signed up. Your parents signed up. You know, Israel signed up in Egypt for the benefits of the Pharaoh. And for 400 years, they were in bondage. Because one generation signed up. Why do you think it's any different now? The reality is if you want to go back to a, to when America was great, when America was free, you have to change your way of thinking. You have to repent. You have to start taking back your responsibility as the people of righteousness. That's why... You're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God in his righteousness. I, I don't know how much of this. Uh, I've got an awful lot of notes on this 1619 project. Uh, 
attributing the unique characteristics of American society to slavery when essentially all societies had slavery historically. That's one of the things that the 1776 people point out. Bob Woodson also noted that uh, the lies and omissions are not effective tools with which to fight racism. Well, actually, this whole system, 1619 Project, is actually promoting racism. Racism was almost gone in this country in the early 1900s. It was around, and it always will be around. Same as there's always going to be prostitution, and there's going to be abusers and users, and there's going to be the, the poor you in spirit you will always have amongst you. But it was under Woodrow Wilson where uh, segregation was reintroduced into the military and reintroduced into other institutions of the United States. Who was elected, you know, as a Democrat because party divided into three parts. But we had a three-party system. The Bull Moose Party came in, and that's what got Woodrow Wilson elected. And he moved us back in this prejudice. But the real promoters of racism in America was LBJ. And he did it by the war on poverty. Because he divided the American people instead of... The blacks should be following people like uh, Booker T. Washington, who set great cultural example of what you need in order to become a success in society and uh, and Thomas Sowell and people like that uh, contemporaries they tell you what you should be doing but this idea of omitting whole elements the reality is Bob Woodson omits he doesn't intentionally omit but it was omitted from his education because of that stuff that started back in the early 1900s Immediately, the best lie is just not the whole truth. That's why you need to know the whole truth about American history, but you also need to know the whole truth about Christian history, real Christianity, what the real Christian conflict was between Christians and the Roman Socialist Republic, which was becoming an indirect democracy itself. And why that changes, that cultural changes in the Roman society was altering and degenerating the people. Christianity was regenerating, rebirthing society to become that free society as Rome collapsed. You're at the point where you need to start regenerating your local communities in by gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and taking over more and more of your responsibilities for Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. This is what Christ called the weightier matters. Christ said those were the weightier matters. Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You have to take over that responsibility in your local community. You know, we've written a lot in the book Covenants of the Gods about contractual nature of government. And we have 15 chapters in there to show you how you've lost freedom by making contracts with society, with the government, in order to obtain benefits, in order to obtain access in society. You've had to make these contracts. But if you would have not forgot the practice of pure religion, you would be in a far different position. But you don't practice pure religion anymore. Pure religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. 
today in your churches, 90 to 95 percent or more of the charity in your local community churches is provided by government, which is not charity at all. It's force. That's contrary to Christ. That's contrary to the gospel of the kingdom. You need to change that. Only you can change that by turning around your thinking and going the other way, seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So until you do that, all I can say is peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.